share it. I guess I'm going to get started. Charlotte. <clears throat> Good morning, ladies. Come on in. Take your seats. I am excited to be here this morning in for Janet Dennison. For those of you who may be starting, uh, have started the semester and you don't know me, my name is Melissa Hood. I'm here at Janet Dennison's invitation and I am excited to share good news with you from Janet. Uh, last night I got an email from her. First, I have to tell you that I um, emailed her because I happen to live uh, about a block from Rachel and Craig Dennison. And day before yesterday, I started noticing these orange ribbons tied around the telephone poles and signs that were along Walnut Hill. And then yesterday, I got out, and I saw even more ribbons one street over from me. So I thought, huh, I usually am pretty aware of what's going on in the neighborhood and know what the ribbons mean. I wonder what they mean. And so I followed the trail of ribbons, and I came to Craig and Rachel's house, and there were orange and white balloons gracing their front door. And I said, ah. These orange ribbons are for wells. And all these neighbors are now added to the army of believers who are praying for wells and the Denison family. So I emailed Janet to tell her that I'd seen the orange ribbons and I knew what they meant and that there were more prayer warriors added to his team. So she responded to me with this word. Please tell everybody tomorrow that Wells is doing really well. So praise God. He takes a chemo pill each day and has an infusion each week. He has a ways to go and it gets tough, but he is a trooper. So I am thrilled to be the bearer of that good news today and to have the opportunity to talk about the very best good news, and that is God's word. So before we begin, let me open us in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you praising your name. We thank you for the opportunity that you give us each week to gather with like-minded believers, sisters in Christ, who get to pour over your word and learn more about you and how we can be imitators of Jesus Christ and serve you and share the good news with our lost and dying world. Lord, now I lift up all those 
in our circle and our fam in the family members who are dealing with illness lord we ask your hand of healing upon every one of them and we ask for peace comfort and strength for the journey and thank you that you've given us a family of god to walk through these times together and now lord i lift up this time to you as we open up your word Lord, your message is perfect. Your messenger is flawed. I pray that your Holy Spirit will speak through me and that the women will hear not my words, but the words of the Holy Spirit as you open their hearts and minds to hear your word. I ask all this in the blessed name of Jesus. Amen. Okay. Um, so we started a new book today. 1 John, and we are in chapter 1, just 10 verses, uh, relatively short. Um, and some of you may have, when you saw me up here, say, oh, good, the substitute teacher is here today. We're going to get out at 1115. Well, I may be on Janet Dennison time today, just wherever the Holy Spirit takes us. So um, I will try to get us out of, on time, but I am making no promises. Uh, so we're looking at 1 John, and Janet has entitled uh, the lesson, Genuine Christianity, What is Biblical Christianity? You know, in our world today, people have all kinds of definitions about what Christianity is. And they'll say, I'm a Christian. I also, I believe this, I believe this, and what they say, what they state as Christian beliefs is really far from it. So we're going to go back to God's word to see what the Apostle John has to say. Now, I have to tell you, um, the way I study may be different from some of you. I found myself saying, I need to go back and revisit John, the author. And so we're going to start with this question, who is John according to Scripture? So we can understand where he's coming from, what gives John the authority to say what he does, and what, by, what might be his motivation behind it. So before we do that, though, I have an illustration, and I ask you to bear with me because some of you are going to hear it and you're going to say, where is she going with this? Which is what my husband says to me sometimes when I'm explaining something. Where are you going with this? So, here we go. I want to see a show of hands. How many in this room have a personal recollection about the Apollo moon landings? That's most of us. Now, if you were born after 1972, you, you were just a child, and you have no remembrance of what that was like as the rest of us lived it. From July 1969 to December 1972, there were moon landings. And... Uh, I can recall, and I cannot tell you, because at the last one, Apollo 17, when the last man walked on the moon, 
I was nine years old. So my recollection, you know, the first one I would have been five. And so my recollection is not specific as to the, the dates or which missions. But my recollection is sitting around the TV, and I recall Walter Cronkite, <laughs> the best newsman ever. Walter Cronkite, we could trust him. And I remember watching the rockets blast off from Cape Kennedy and those engines thrusting and it's just going up till it could break the bonds of Earth's atmosphere. And then I recall the tense moments as we watched and that capsule went on the dark side of the moon and NASA did not have contact with the astronauts and we waited until it came around to hear, were they still there? And then the actual moon walkers. There have been 12 men who have actually walked on the lunar surface. And if you, you remember, or maybe if you were very young, you have seen a documentary, or you've seen clips, and they're in those spacesuits. And remember how they did this as they walked, and they were giddy. They, were, they hit golf balls, and they planted flags, and I think it was Gene Cernan who said, I was walking through the park one day. I mean, just, it was incredible. And I, I was reading this morning, I don't remember this myself, but I was reading that Walter Cronkite, when Apollo 11 landed on the moon, and those astronauts stepped off that Walter Cronkite's expression was, oh boy. <laughs> and then he turned to um, Wally Shira, an astronaut who was sitting next to him, and he says, Wally, say something. I'm without words. But that was an incredible time in history. And so many of us remember that. Well, of those, tw of those 12 moonwalkers, there are only four who are still living. They are Buzz Aldrin, he's 93. David Scott is 90. Charles Duke is 87, and Harrison Smith is 87. Now, in addition to those astronauts, that Apollo program over all these years, over 400,000 scientists, engineers, technologists, machinists, and electricians worked on that program and all the support staff that went with it, not to mention the families of these men who had front row seats. Now you may recall that, I mean, these men risked their lives to do this. And the first Apollo mission, which was a test flight, that exploded, I mean, there was a fire in that capsule and all that crew died. This was, this was a costly endeavor. And yet, there are those who deny the moon landings ever happened. The most prominent denier was a man named Bill Casing. Mr. Casing was a college graduate with a degree 
in English literature. He became a technical writer for Rocket Dyne. Rocket Dyne designed and built the rocket engines that would propel those astronauts into space. At some point, Mr. Casing decided in his own mind, through hunch, through intuition, and his own firm conviction that the Apollo moon landings were faked. A complete hoax. He was no longer employed by Rocketdyne when in 1976 he wrote a book entitled We Never Went to the Moon, America's $30 billion swindle. He even went as far as to say that NASA murdered the Apollo 1 crew because they were about to expose the plan to fake these moon landings. Can you imagine how absurd? Astronaut Jim Level, as you remember from Apollo 13 fame, said, wacky. The man is wacky. What an affront to these brave men and the sacrifices that may ma they made. Now, I want you to listen to this quote from History.com. To those who know the moon landing was real, conspiracy theories that it was a hoax may seem silly and innocuous, but their consequences aren't. They spread misinformation, make people susceptible to other false theories, and could earn you a punch in the face from Buzz Aldrin. <laughs> Ladies, in 2019, Buzz Aldrin, he's 93 now, so he wasn't, he wasn't young when he did this. In 2019, he was approached by a denier, and Buzz Aldrin punched him squarely in the face. Take that, you denier. I was there. Where am I going with this? Some of you might have already figured it out. The Apostle John was one of the last living apostles, one of the last of the 12, an eyewitness to the incarnate Jesus, fully God, fully man. He was an eyewitness to his crucifixion and his resurrected body. The consequences for the distortion of the truth of the gospel message are far greater than any claim that we didn't land on the moon. Getting it wrong means eternal separation from God. Life. Eternal life. We can't get it wrong. And that's what John did. It's not just a philosophical idea, how we choose to live our life, a hunch or an intuition. It is truth. So John wrote his gospel and the epistle of 1 John to encourage those who were already believers to hold fast to the apostolic teaching they had been taught and as a civil punch in the face to the deniers. And so when we look at 1 John, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to read it like a punch in the face. 
Since the first century, there have been threats to Christianity from the outside, that's persecution, and from the inside, that's false teaching. And so that is what John is writing to correct any false teaching and to give his eyewitness account of the truth. Last week, we looked at Paul's last words to Timothy, and he had strong words for those false teachers who wormed their way into homes and convinced weak-willed people that this sounded good. Their false teaching sounded like a good idea. It allowed them to remain in their sinful state, and John calls them back to the truth and denies the false teaching. So with that, I'm not reading anymore except for what's on the slide. Who is John? Who's our author? Who is this eyewitness? He was an apostle called by Jesus. In Mark 1, 19 through 20, you can go back and read how Jesus called his first apostles, that was Peter and Andrew, brothers, fishermen, he was walking along the Sea of Galilee and called those brothers. And then right after that, he went down and he called James and John, brothers. James was the older brother. They were fishing. They were fishermen. They were working for their father, Zebedee. And scripture tells us right there that when Jesus said, follow me, James and John left their father, Zebedee, and the hired servants in the boat, and they went after Jesus. They didn't hesitate. Next, this is one of my favorite descriptions of James and John. Jesus called the brothers sons of thunder in Mark 3.17. He had a nickname. You know how George W. Bush had nicknames for everybody in the White House and then for his family? Jesus had some nicknames too. And for James and John, he called them sons of thunder. I'm a boy mom, mom of two boys as well. I also sometimes think my boys are sons of thunder, but maybe not for the right reasons. <laughs> um, in Luke chapter 9, verses 54 to 55, uh, the story where Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem, and he planned to go through Samaria. And they came to a Samaritan village, and you know how the Samaritans felt about anybody who was headed to Jerusalem. Nope, you are not coming through our village. And so what did the brothers James and John do? They reacted in anger. How dare you talk to the Son of God that way? Jesus, do you want us to call down fire from heaven just like Elijah did? And Jesus rebuked them. But what does that tell you about John's personality? He was no shrinking violet. He was ready to defend Jesus and call down fire from heaven. Uh, we also know that uh, John was part of the inner circle, Peter, James, and John. Uh, they were that small group. There were the 12 apostles, but then there was that inner circle of those three. And Jesus often pulls those three with him. We have a record of healings where he took just those three men with him. Here uh, is the example where he just took the three to the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17, verses 1 through 9. Now, 
I want you to imagine this. Peter, James, and John, Jesus takes them to the Mount of Transfiguration, and they witness Jesus. This is before the resurrection. They witness Jesus. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes were as white as they could be. And then Moses and Elijah came down from heaven, and they were on either side of him. And then the voice from the cloud, the voice of God said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. Think about John. How did that affect his faith? How did that bolster him? What he witnessed with his eyes. Jesus gave them that gift. He gave them that gift because he knew they would need it. Uh, James and John boldly asked Jesus to let them sit on his left and right hand in glory in Mark 10, 35 to 44. I was talking to my husband about this last night because I make him sit down and listen before I do this. And he said, wait, that was Jesus' mom who asked. And I said, oh, yes, you are correct. But that account is in Matthew chapter 20. So, uh, so I, did, I went back and I said, let me reread that. And Matthew does have Jesus' mom as the one who is asking Jesus, hey, Jesus, my boys, James and John, can they sit on either side of you in glory? And as I thought about it this morning, I thought, you know, that was the original parent-teacher conference. <laughs> mom comes to the teacher and says, my boys are the best star pupils. Can they have the best seat assignments? Jesus said to her and to them, both accounts, what Jesus said is exactly the same. You don't know what you're asking for. There's a huge cost. And that's not for me to decide. That's what the father, the father decides who's going to take those places. And then he goes on to say that you must be a servant. And the greatest has to become the least. And the least will become the greatest. And now at the crucifixion, John stood near the cross at the crucifixion close to Mary. He's the only apostle that is recorded was there at the crucifixion. The rest of them were hiding. The rest of them were not there. But there was John right by the mother of Jesus. And we know from the scripture, Jesus said, Dear woman, to his mother, here is your son. And to John, the disciple that Jesus loved. That's the moniker that John used for himself in his gospel. We'll talk about that in a minute. Here is your mother. From that time on, the disciple took her into his home. And I want you to think about that for just a minute. John writes a lot about love, which I think sometimes we forget. And we think of him as mild and sweet because we associate him with love. No, we look at scripture. He was bold. Yes, he had love. He had the love of Jesus in him. But he was bold. Think about the courage that it took for him to stand there right at the cross. 
with the mother, Mary. And think about Jesus as the Son of God chooses someone to take care of his mother. The one who had said to the angel, let it be to me as you have said, I am the Lord's servant. Who did Jesus, the Son of God, choose to take care of that woman? John. John. Someone who was courageous and strong and full of the Holy Spirit. His brother James, his older brother, was the first of the 12 to be martyred, beheaded by Herod in 44 AD. We know that from Acts 12 too. And just as a side note, recorded in scripture, we only know um, about the fate of two of the disciples, apostles, according to what's written. That's Judas and James. I want you to think just a minute about, this is John's older brother, James. This is the one that he was in business with his dad. They worked alongside each other, and then they chose to follow Jesus together. All the experiences that they had had together, you know, as brothers and as apostles. And John knew, I mean, yes, John knew James boldly professing and claiming Jesus as Lord cost him his life. Think about how that affected John. And yet, it didn't change his resolve to follow Jesus and head the same direction. Now, I want to go back for just a minute um, and talk about John's description of himself as uh, the disciple that Jesus loved. There's all kinds of theories about why John referred to himself that way in his gospel, which was his eyewitness account. One very simple reason could be when John started out writing his eyewitness account, he referred to John. He was talking about John the Baptist. Maybe it was a simple matter of differentiating. I don't want too many Johns in here because that's confusing. Also, as we read about the apostles, they were human. And we know that there was a little bit of a rivalry. That's our humanity. We're going to see that in just a minute. Perhaps that was, I'm his favorite. Could have been. But it also could have been that John, face to face with Jesus, knew he was a sinner. But he'd been called by Jesus. And Jesus had given his life to give John eternal life. And so that was the way he referred to himself in humility as the one who Jesus loved. The last thing, well, I've got two more things to talk about still on John and who he was and his experiences. We have the empty tomb in John 20, verses 1 through 8. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, John, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. So Peter and the other disciple... That's John. 
started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. (laughs) Gotta love that. Isn't it interesting why John put that in there? You see this rivalry. And going back to when James and John asked Jesus if they could sit on either side of him, that made the other disciples mad. They, they were irritated that James and John had asked for special treatment. So the humanity of these apostles comes through in the scripture. And I love it that they are sinners and human just like me and you. Um, so then he, that is John, bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him. And went straight into the tomb. John allowed Peter to go in first. Don't know why. Is there some kind of an order? You know, because Peter said, you are the Christ. And Jesus said, upon this rock, Peter, that's your name, I will build my church. Maybe. Um, Maybe because Peter was called before James. I mean, before James and John. We don't know why. But. This was on purpose, that he let Peter go in first. Um, So he saw Peter, that is the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, that's John, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, side he saw and believed what did he believe we already know he believed Jesus was the Christ he believed Jesus was resurrected exactly like he said he would be and just think again how this bolstered John and then finally I want to go to the conclusion of John's gospel Uh, In chapter 21, the setup is that the disciples, after the resurrection and after Jesus had appeared to them earlier in uh, the upper room, the disciples were out fishing, presumably the ones who were fishermen. And Jesus came to the side, basically said, you catching anything? They didn't recognize him. And so then he tells them to throw their net on the other side. And when they did, the net was full of fish. And John was the one who looked at Jesus. It is the Lord. He said it to Peter. And so then they ate breakfast with Jesus. And after that, you know the story of Jesus reinstating Peter. And Jesus asked Peter, Peter, do you love me? Three times. And it was feed my sheep, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. And Peter declared his love for Jesus. And Peter, Jesus said to Peter, follow me. And he said to Peter, Peter, when you were young, you dressed yourself and you went wherever you wanted to go. But when you were old, someone else will dress you and they will take you to where you do not want to go. And Peter knew in that moment That meant he would die for his faith in Jesus. But Peter, 
in true human fashion, turns and looks at John and says, what about him, Lord? What about him? And this is Jesus' answer. If I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. And so these words to Peter are also his words to us. No matter what anybody else does, no matter what their path that the Lord has laid out for them, we each have our path and our call to follow Jesus, no matter what. Because of this, the rumor spread among the believers that this disciple, that is John, would not die. But Jesus did not say he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I, first person, John, suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. Okay, so that's John. And I, feel, I felt like that was important. It was important for me to really understand First John along with, this. John was at Ephesus when he wrote the Gospel of John and the Epistles, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. Scholars, most scholars, place it toward the end of John's life between 85 and 95 AD. Stylistically, John's Gospel is somewhat different from the others. You talked about it today in your small groups. John 1.1, his Gospel starts in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He got right to it. This is my theme. This is my point. Uh, one reason may be that John was writing his gospel as his eyewitness account to set the record straight because of the false teaching that was circulating at the time by a man named Serenthus, one of the early Gnostic teachers. Subsequently, John wrote his epistles to remind the believers to remain steadfast in the truth that they had been taught and to discredit the Gnostic philosophies that were involving evolving so quickly we're going to go through these gnostic teachings and in that first century they were evolving so there is no way to be able to systematically say this is all the false teaching and this is what it was because they were making it up as they went these false teachers but serinthianism was one form of the false teaching they taught that the world was created by a power separate from god that Jesus was the natural-born, completely human son of Joseph and Mary, though he was a very righteous and good man. He was a wise man. Uh, upon baptism, uh, Serenthus taught that the dove that came descended on Jesus was the actual Messiah, not the human in front of them. And that dove, when it descended on him, gave him miraculous powers, and then that dove left him upon his death. 
Serinthus' beliefs were an amalgamation of Judaism, Christianity, Greek philosophy, and Gnosticism, a system of beliefs created by false teachers. We see that today, ladies, where a system of beliefs is just gathered from like, oh, I think I'm going to take a little of Buddhism. That sounds good. Um, a little of uh, Islam. That sounds good. A little bit of this, a little bit of that. No, there is one truth. Uh, another group was the Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans, spirit is completely good and matter is totally evil. That would be this body is matter or anything on this earth is matter. Salvation, they taught, is attained through special knowledge, enlightenment, and escape from the evil body not through Jesus Christ. Since the body is evil, it is to be treated harshly. That was one theory that came out of it. That's asceticism, denying every pleasure to the body, self-flagellation. That came about from this Gnostic, Gnostic teaching. Or conversely, do whatever you want in the body. It doesn't matter because the spirit is totally good, and what is done in the body doesn't affect the spirit. That was their teaching, which led to our immorality. Helps us to understand uh, what John is saying. And then finally, docetism. Denied that Jesus Christ had a human body. He only appeared to have human form. He was only an illusion, a ghost, or a figment of imagination kind of like those faked moon landings. Therefore, his sufferings were not real. And that brings us finally to the text today. 1 John 1, 1 through 4. And ladies, this I read as John's punch in the face to those who would deny that Jesus was fully God, fully man, and that Jesus was the only way to salvation. John knew he was an eyewitness. So listen to it this way. That, oh, well, let me say before I go into that. You know, we, we read Paul's letters. And Paul usually starts from Paul, an apostle chosen by Jesus, to Timothy, my dear son in the faith, grace and peace to you. First John doesn't start that way. He is hopping mad. I thought this morning that makes him hopping John. No. <laughs> he is mad and he comes out with a punch enough of, I'm John. This is to you. This was a circular letter going to all the believers. But he is mad and he comes out with a punch in the face to the deniers. That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, that is, we gazed, we spent time with him, and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. Again, we have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard. Again, 
I'm an eyewitness. I was there so that you also may have fellowship, unity with us. And our fellowship, our unity, is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. John knew, he knew the truth of the gospel message. And like Paul wrote, it was the power of God for salvation to those who would believe that Jesus Christ was who he said he was. The only cure for the deadly disease that plagues us all. Sin, eternal separation from God, the only cure. So he says, I've got to tell you this message and I want you to believe it. And in that way, my joy will be complete. I have done what Jesus tasked me to do. Then he goes on to talk about walking in the light. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. That is holiness, goodness, perfection. In him there is no darkness no evil, no sin. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he in, is in the light, if we walk, if we live in the light of Jesus' teachings, who said, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. We have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. That's really important. We know with teaching from Hebrews chapter 9, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. No matter what the Gnostics taught. This is the truth, God's truth. And then finally, verses 8 through 10. If we claim to be without sin... We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. That was a direct refutation of what the Gnostics said. They said in their spirit, they had no sin, because it didn't matter what they did with their bodies. But that's also a word to the believers. If we think we are good enough, we are lying to ourselves. We are not good enough. But this wonderful promise, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And in the closing verse in chapter 1, if we claim we have not sinned, we make him, that is Jesus Christ, out to be a liar and his word is not in us. So ladies, this is John's punch in the face to those who would deny the truth of the gospel message that Jesus had entrusted with those apostles and given to us. So I want to close 
with the very words of Jesus in John's gospel, chapter 14, verses 6 through 7. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Ladies, on the authority of the word of God, this is biblical Christianity and nothing else. Pray with me now. Dear God, thank you for your word. Thank you for sending Jesus to be our Savior. Thank you for shedding his blood so that our sins might be covered and that we might be made right, reconciled to you, and that through the blood of Jesus, all you see is his righteousness covering us. Thank you, Lord, for this truth. May we live it. Lord, we see revival breaking out among college students across the country, and it quickens our hearts, and it encourages us. You are not through yet. May that revival spark in each of us so that you can find us faithful to share your truth and your gospel to a lost and dying world. We ask this in the blessed name of Jesus. Amen. I told you I was on Janet Dennison time. <laughs>